so we're going to start this morning's um, a reflection on uh, the book of 1 and 2 Kings with a, with a video from the Bible Project. Um, as I was preparing today's sermon, this is kind of, the, the text we're reading is a, is a preacher's dream. It's broken up into three distinct sections with the same sort of refrain and um, it, it really comes together really quite well, but it doesn't allow you to cover the whole book of Kings then because, you know, it, it kind of works uh, in that way. So I thought it would be helpful to show you this video from the Bible Project. It's about seven minutes long um, and it covers the, uh, the, the book of Kings and so uh, in both one and two Kings. And I think it's just really helpful for us as we're continuing to, to travel through, you know, from the garden to the garden city to have a look at this book as a whole and then we're going to drill down into 1 Kings chapter um, 18 in a little while. So uh, feast your eyes on this. The books of 1st and 2nd Kings, although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. The book opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel, and he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now, if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is breaking breaking every one. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. 
He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together, these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so in a famous story, Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both build altars and pray to their gods, but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice and he announces the downfall of his house. Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his prophetic leadership to a young disciple named Elisha, who asks for two times the authority of Elijah. And what's fascinating here is how the author, he's recounted seven miraculous feats for Elijah, and then he offers stories of 14 acts of power from Elijah. Both prophets were clearly remarkable men, and they played the same role, confronting Israel's kings for idolatry and injustice. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy. In the next section, the northern kingdom is rocked by a bloody revolution started by a king named Jehu, who destroys Ahab's family. And although Jehu was at first commissioned by God, his violence just gets out of control, and it creates the spiral of political assassinations and rebellions from which Israel never recovered. Coup follows coup after Jehu, and each king follows other gods, allows horrible injustice. It all leads up to 2 Kings chapter 17. The 
the big bad empire of Assyria swoops down and takes out the northern kingdom altogether. In the capital city of Samaria, it's conquered and the Israelites are exiled and scattered throughout the ancient world. Now, chapter 17 is key. The author stops the story and offers this prophetic reflection on what's just happened. He blames the downfall of the northern kingdom on the idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness of Israel and its kings. And so God has allowed them to face the consequences of their decisions. The final movement of the book tells the story of the lone southern kingdom. And here we meet some very heroic kings like Hezekiah, who trusts God when the armies of Assyria come knocking on Jerusalem's door, or Josiah, who discovers this lost scroll of the Torah in the temple. So he starts reading it. He's convicted and he institutes religious reforms to remove idolatry and Canaanite influences from the land. But Judah is just too far gone. The king, right in between these two, Manasseh, he's the worst by far. So he not only introduces the worship of idol statues into the Jerusalem temple, he also institutes child sacrifice. And so God sends prophets to say, the time is up. Israel has reached the point of no return. The final chapters tell the story of the Babylonian Empire coming to invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry the people and the royal line of David off into exile. And so the story ends leaving us wondering, is God done with Israel? Is he done with the line of David? Well, the final paragraph zooms about 40 years forward into the exile, and it tells a very odd story. It's about Jehoiakim, a descendant from David, who would have been king if he was back in Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and the book ends. So it's not much, but it's a story that gives a glimmer of hope that God has not abandoned the line of David. So the question now is, how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David? How is he going to bless the nations and bring the messianic kingdom? And to answer those questions, you have to read on into the wisdom and the prophetic books. But for now, that's the book of Kings. Pretty good, eh? Uh, I want to encourage you, if you have time, uh, do find the Bible Project online. Uh, then you don't have to come to church uh, and then, you know, while we're doing this series, because uh, they do a better job than I do, because I can't draw. So. Um, uh, but that's the story of the Book of Kings. Uh, so we're going to be focusing on that center contest today between uh, Elijah and these prophets of Baal as we read 1 Kings 18. So if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, that would be good um, uh, to read with me. And we're going to 1 Kings chapter 16, uh, sorry, 18 from verse 16 to uh, 46. Now Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him... Uh, and. Oh, so, yeah, okay, so and told him. So, what happens before this is that um, King Ahab has, has collected all these prophets of Baal and he wants uh, to destroy God's prophets. And so, Obadiah uh, is this guy who's, who's warned, um, he's warning Elijah that, that Ahab wants to, uh, wants to kill him. And so, Elijah meets with Obadiah and says, No, I have a message from God. I have to go to the king. And so, Obadiah goes to King Ahab and tells him Elijah's on his way. Then Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, the one ruining Israel? He replied, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you've abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. 
Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all, of, all the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let, uh, let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and place it uh, on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers with fire, he is God. And all the people answered, that's fine. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Babel, since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull and, uh, that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Uh, then they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he is a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away, or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. So they shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of, uh, of the evening sacrifice. But there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, whom the Lord had uh, from uh, to sorry to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, "Israel will be your name." Then he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged the wood, cut up the bull, placed it on the wood, and he said, "Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burnt on the wood." Then he said a second time, and they did it a second time. Then he said a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. He even filled the trench with water. At the time for the offering of the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, today let it be known that you are a God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that at your word I have done these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that, uh, that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah ordered them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not leave, uh, let even one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and slaughtered them there. Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. So Ahab went uh, to eat and drink, but Elijah went to the summit of Carmel, and he bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. Then he said to his servants, Go uh, up and look towards the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. Seven times Elijah said, go back. 
And on the seventh time he reported, There is a cloud, as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. Then Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Get your chariot ready to go down so the rain doesn't stop you. In a little while the sky grew dark with clouds and wind and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah and he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So obviously there's, there's a big, um, uh, a lot of context around here as you can see from, from the video we watched. And there's this massive famine in Israel. And uh, part of the reason there is famine is because the people have turned away from God. And so, um, so what's happening here is that Elijah as the prophet comes and he, uh, by God's word, wants to turn people's hearts back to him. And as the people then turn to him, God sends this kind of cleansing rain that will end the famine and people will have food again. And so that's the sort of immediate context of where we find ourselves. As I was thinking about this, I I thought um, that in life there are things that are really binary, that there are choices that are either one thing or the other thing. You can't have it both ways. You know, when you think about the football or the rugby, you either support the mighty Gold Coast Suns or you're wrong. Uh, when you watch the rugby, you either support the Springboks or the Wallabies. When they play against each other, you can't really support them both. You cannot sit on the fence. And this is true of many aspects of our lives, isn't it? It's not just about sporting teams. You're either alive or you're dead. You can't be just a little bit dead. Um, you're either pregnant or you're not. You can't get a touch pregnant. These are binary states. They are on or off, one or zero, right or wrong. And In our text today, we see that believing in God is the same kind of binary thing. Aligning ourselves with God is a binary choice. You are either wholly in or wholly out. And yet, if you are like me or any other human being, we try it, don't we? We we try to pick God to follow Jesus. We're sort sort of Christian, but often we don't fully commit. Uh, very popular today, we accept the teaching of uh, the Bible's teachings on love and, and joy and tolerance, but we want to reject the notion of God's wrath, don't we? We want to reject the Bible's teachings on self-sacrifice and things like homosexuality and, and so on. We, we want to sit on the fence there because we don't fully commit. We try to wear both a springbok jumper and a wallaby cap, as it were, We try and pretend that you can be a little bit pregnant. Uh, We want it both ways. But does the Bible actually allow for this? Can we say uh, that we are truly Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus, if we sit on the fence? Now, our text today speaks directly to that question. And so, uh, the text, as I mentioned, is broken up very neatly into these refrains of answering this question to Elijah or to God or to Baal. Um, And the first question is Elijah's question to the people, but they don't answer. So the people don't answer, and that's the first thing we're looking at this morning. So the situation is this. Elijah has summoned the the Israelites to the top of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was the place of worship for Baal. Now, the name means the mountain of fruitfulness. Uh, Baal and Asherah were these fertility gods. They controlled the rain and, they, uh, and the people prayed to them to give them good crops. 
And so, in a way, Elijah is summoning the Israelites to the top of the mountain of the false god Baal. The the people are being summoned into Baal's stronghold, if you like. And here it is that Elijah has a go at the people of Israel. How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you flip between these two options? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But you must choose. Elijah is having a go at the sort of pluralism in the Israelites' uh, um, hearts. The issue isn't so much that they didn't believe in Yahweh God, but rather that they didn't exclusively trust in Yahweh God. They were, after all, called the nation of Israel, the people who strive with God. That's what Israel means, the nation of El being uh, pointing to God. And so what Elijah is challenging the people to do here is to simply be consistent. If they're going to worship God, then worship God. If they're going to worship Baal, then worship Baal. Don't be fence-sitters because that doesn't work. And what do the people respond with? Our text says that the people do not answer. They know that they're sitting on the fence. And yet that's almost a worse situation for them to be in. He tells them not to hobble from one opinion to the other, never really making a decision, to choose. It would be better for them to choose even if it's the wrong choice. But they must choose. In fact, we get this same situation uh, again in the New Testament after Jesus come, uh, comes. Uh, in Revelation, we read of how lukewarm worship of God is not tolerated. God demands our wholehearted devotion. If you want to flip over to Revelation 15, uh, we're, we're reading to the church in, in Laodicea. So, um, so God is, uh, through Jesus, is, uh, is writing to the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were, hot, you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Friends, God does not accept our half-hearted worship. You cannot worship God and something else. We must choose whom we will worship. This same type of pluralism that is being displayed by the Israelites here, we see in our lives too. You know, sometimes we trust God for the big stuff, but we want to take care of the little stuff ourselves. Or perhaps worse is we trust God for the small stuff, but the big things like our salvation, you know, we want to make sure we get that right by doing all kinds of religious things. What does this hobbling from one opinion to the other look like in practice? I, I, think, I think probably, as I thought about this, the, most, the biggest, most dangerous example I think we have as Christians today is how we view Scripture. It is particularly prevalent in our society, Christian society today, where people will trust some parts of the Bible that agree with our personal convictions, with our societal moral code, the things we are comfortable with believing. We like to say things like, I I like the Jesus who who came and, and stood for and stood in place of our sins, but I'm not so keen on the God of the Old Testament. 
Now, as we've seen, it's the same God that tells the same story from beginning to end. It's one particular story. It's the same God. You can't hold that view. Or we say things like, the primary message of the Bible is love. Love is to be our highest ideal. And we can just ignore God's wrath. Not understanding that God's wrath and His love are two sides of the same coin. God is angry at sin precisely because He loves loves us. We can think God is the God of love, but I'm not so keen on his uh, teachings about um, homosexuality or adultery or holiness or righteousness or whatever sin particularly we, we want to hold on to. We want to reject those parts of Scripture, hobbling from one opinion to the other. Friends, we need to pick God and wholeheartedly worship Him. Elijah is forcing the people here to choose who will they serve. And through him we are forced to choose whom will we serve. Because the reality is we cannot choose to sit on the fence. Having a bit of uh, of feet in each camp is to, to not choose God at all. When you worship two gods, you're only worshiping the wrong one. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot serve God in the world. You cannot serve God in beauty. You cannot serve God and anything else as your Lord. So pick Christ and stick with Him only. Do not serve the Baals and the Asherahs of today. Don't hobble from one opinion to the other. We must choose today who will you worship. There is no option to be a person who does not answer, a person who cannot wholeheartedly say, I will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in our text then, there are these two options. Whom will you serve, Israel? God or Baal? Yahweh or Baal? Which will the people choose? So let's look at the first of these options, Baal. The problem is the people didn't answer, but also neither does Baal. So the people didn't answer, and now let's look at how Baal doesn't answer. You know, it's not as if his prophets didn't worship him hard enough. Elijah arranges these two equal sacrifices, one for for Baal and one for Yahweh, and he says to the prophets of Baal, since there are so many of you, why don't you go first? And so they start calling out on the name of Baal. From morning and noon they call out, answer us, Baal, answer us. But, what does the text say? There is no response, no one answered. And so they try something different. Maybe if we dance around the altar, that'll work. You know, they start dancing around the altar, but that doesn't work. And so Elijah starts taunting them, shout louder. Maybe Baal can't hear you. Maybe he is deep in thought, which is a euphemism for being on the toilet in Hebrew. Maybe he's, this is true by the way, Uh, maybe he's busy traveling, maybe he's sleeping, maybe you can wake up Baal if you shout louder. You can hear how Elijah mocks these people, he taunts them, he ridicules them, he embarrasses them because Baal cannot answer. But, not to be dismayed, they increase the intensity of their worship, even to the point of cutting themselves, literally shedding their blood for Baal, all throughout the day until evening. But what does our text say? There was no response, 
No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal does not answer them. There is a principle for us to think about here, friends. And the principle is this. No matter how passionately, how earnestly, how violently, how dedicatedly we worship a God who isn't God, that God cannot help you. No matter how passionately we worship a God who is not God, that God cannot save you. And in fact, the more earnestly you worship a God who is not God, the more that false God will demand from you. Maybe it starts with praying, then proceeds to dancing, and ultimately to destroying your own body for it. And yet, Baal does not answer. It is a worship spiral that ensnares you and consumes you, and in the case of the prophets of Baal, even caused them to shed their own blood to appease him, to summon him. But that doesn't work. But is that not how idolatry works? Where we worship something that pretends to feed us for the first time, the first one's free, and then the next time you need a bit more, something deeper, something stronger, something more exciting, and the more you worship the idol, this false god, whatever it is, the more it demands from you, and the less it gives you, you become ensnared. That is how idol worship works. And it happens to all of us. Because we worship our false gods and the more we worship them, the more they demand from us and the more we become ensnared. But when we appeal to them, as the, prophet, uh, as the narrator of Kings says, in the end there is no response, no one answered, no one pays attention. Our false gods cannot save us. Baal doesn't answer because he cannot. He serves only himself. So if Baal cannot answer, what about God then? Yahweh. Which God should we choose? Let's look finally at Yahweh because he answers. So the story so far, Elijah summoned these people to the top of the mountain. This contest is going on. Which God will win? Baal or Yahweh? Which is the real God? And then he invites these prophets of Baal to prepare their sacrifice. They call on Baal. They carry on singing and dancing, shouting. Baal doesn't answer. So that's the story. What happens next is Elijah calls the people to him and they come. And then he rebuilds the Lord's altar using these 12 stones. Now, this is uh, Elijah reminding the people of who they were. One stone for each tribe of Israel. He's, he's, he's reminding the people who they were. He's reminding them of their heritage. They are God's people, not Baal's people. And so Elijah's already, even just in building the altar, making a statement. This will be a shrine to the God of Israel. And when once he builds this altar, he digs this trench around, him, uh, around it and he gets the people to pour these jugs of water on the altar and the wood and the sacrifice. There's so much water that even this little moat around the altar is filled with water. And then when 
the time for the evening sacrifice comes, Elijah steps up and prays. And it says, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And so Elijah starts calling out to God to let it be known that he is God. There's this one singular man standing against these 400 prophets of Baal. They've been carrying on all day. The contest was by the end of the day, someone has to win. So they've been carrying on all day. The sun is, is setting. It's like a movie. You know, there are minutes on the clock running down. And it is at this point in time that in these last precious minutes that Elijah says this simple prayer, let it be known today that you are God. By Jewish thinking, the day ends at sundown. In these last precious moments, God is being asked to act. And why? Why should God answer his prayer? So that the people would know that God is turning their hearts back to him. When we pray according to God's will, God will always answer. And so it happens. God sends this consuming fire that consumes not just the offering, not just the meat, but the wood, the altar, all the water around it. It's interesting, isn't it, that God, who the Bible describes in some places as a consuming fire, He consumes the whole offering. Yahweh answers so that the people will turn their hearts back to Him. And that's exactly what happens. They fall prostrate on the ground. They cry, Yahweh, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They worship God and their hearts have turned back to Him, to this God that has this powerful working in their lives because Yahweh answers. That is how God acts. That is still how God acts today, to bring His people's hearts back to Him. God always works to bring His people's uh, hearts back to Him. This is the same story, friends, we have seen again and again and again as we've travelled from the garden, we're heading to the garden of city. Every single time, God's act is for this. Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? He protects them and He turns their hearts back to Him by promising them this deliverer that will one day come. The world turns evil and rejects God and what does God do? He sets aside Noah and his family to turn the people's hearts back to Him. There is this remnant that will come. Israel ends up in Egypt in slavery, what does God do? He protects His people and delivers them from the hands of Pharaoh. Israel wanders away from God. What does he do? He acts by sending Moses and Aaron and the judges and the prophets and whatever to turn their hearts back to him. The judges fail, the kings fail, Ahab here has failed and what does God do? He sends this prophet, Elijah, to bring his people's hearts back to him. Again and again and again. Our faithful God acts to bring people back into a relationship with Him. Yahweh, He answers. And He continues to do this today. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us, But God proves His love for us, 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still wandering away from God, that is when Jesus came to die. While we were still sinners, God acted to bring his people's hearts back to him. Christ dies for us while we were still actively opposing God and working against him, fighting him, and he answers even then when we did not call. Yahweh answers because he continues to protect his people and bring their hearts back to him. Friends, if you are a believer today, our response to this must be praise. Praise that God has already done this for us. Praise that he has sent not just the fire from heaven, but actually his son from heaven to turn our hearts back to him. That he has consumed the sacrifice, the altar and all the water around our hearts to bring us back to him. That he sends Jesus to bring us back to him. If you are a believer, then your faith is a testimony to the fact that God is successful at what he does. If we believe it is only because God has turned our hearts back to him, given us faith so that we too can cry, Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. But if you are not yet a believer today, if you do not yet trust God, then I want to encourage you to look at the fire. See the all-consuming fire that has come down in the form of Jesus Christ and hear the words of this heavenly fire that consumes the altar and the offering and the water. If you will put your trust in Jesus, if you will trust that only He can save you, if you want to worship Him and not Baal, then listen to Yahweh who answers. Cry out to Him, come to Him, put your faith and trust in Him because He will answer. Your idols will not. They never will answer you the way that God can. So put your trust in Him and do it wholeheartedly. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You have answered. You have answered the call of our hearts even when we did not know we were calling. We thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to redeem us, to turn also our hearts back to you through your Holy Spirit. And so now we pray, Lord, that you will help us. Help us to not uh, waver from opinion to opinion, waver from false gods to you. Lord, help us to wholeheartedly, fully, entirely worship you only. Help us, Lord, to see that you are the only one who answers. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.